I want to once more begin with what I believe is an important question. And that is, have we truly learned the value of being tactful, practical, prayerful, thankful, purposeful, and humble, as we saw last Sunday in Daniel. In a July 21st, in a July 21, 2021 Psychology Today article, the article was titled, Why Communication Matters. And Vanessa Lancaster in that article tells about a poster that she remembers from her junior high classroom. And it said, Communication is the beginning of understanding. And she remembers how it spoke to her at that time because she had never really stopped to think much about communication. Like many, she said she would have described communication as simply just sending and receiving messages, just speaking and listening. Here's the line from the article, though, that I want us to lock in on. She said, What is important to understand is that relationships are talked into and out of being. In communication, we develop, create, maintain, and alter our relationships. You see, it's not just what we say, but it's how how we say it. Daniel was able to accomplish what he did. He was able to gain a hearing, to get additional time, to be able to come before the king and interpret the dream because he was tactful. He was practical. He was prayerful. You see, a lot of doors are closed Windows of opportunity are closed by people who, even though they're speaking the truth, are not speaking the truth in love. They're not being tactful, prayerful. I mean, you get the picture. And I often wonder if we truly even understand that in order to reach others for the cause of Christ, our communication skills are so very important. And we desperately need to learn how to cooperate without compromising and the need to pray without fossilizing. What if? What if I told you this morning that there is a good chance that you are worshiping a false god? The well-known and highly influential 16th century theologian John Calvin once said that the heart is a veritable factory of idols. And he's right. American Idol has often been one of the highest rated shows on television. Idols are our specialty. We're constantly coming up with new idols at an unbelievable rate. 
Derek Rishwai. R-I-S-H-M-A-W-Y. Why would you write your name that way? <laughs> Rishmawi. Anyway, Derek wrote an article for the 20, November 2020 edition of Christianity Today. He's a, he is a Christian leader. And it's titled, You're Probably Worshipping a False God. Now he totally caught me off guard when in speaking about our idol making, he wrote, more impressive is our pantheon of false images of the living and true God. It's not for nothing that the Ten Commandments quickly move from ruling out the worship of false gods to censuring the false worship of the true God. Again, he writes, our hearts still fall into that same satanic groove, quickly moving from confessing, I believe in God, to talking about the God I believe in, to making the most dire and pretentious utterance of all, well, I could never believe in a God who. As chapter 2 concluded, we heard Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And you might recall how not only did Nebuchadnezzar make this profession that recognized Daniel's God, he also honored Daniel and his three friends with promotions. But I warned you then that as chapter 3 would begin, it would also reveal that Nebuchadnezzar's profession was only superficial. He might have gotten a little religion, but he hadn't found the true God. And so as we begin to dig into our text today, we read right away in chapter 3 verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. See, in chapter 2, as it ends, we find Nebuchadnezzar at a crossroads. He knew Daniel's God had revealed his dream and the interpretation favored him. He knew that Daniel's God was worthy of worship. But... He didn't fully commit himself to God because his response to the truth was not enough to change him radically. I worked with a couple, husband and wife. And I heard through the grapevine that they had in fact gone down front at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky they had made their profession of faith and the two of them were baptized and became members of the church. And so I, that morning when I knew they would have gotten in, I walked out of my office and around the corner and I walked into the office where she was, a secretary, and his office was connected because as it turns out she was actually his secretary. And I stood there while she was talking to somebody. And I heard her saying, 
Oh, I just got a horrible headache. Horrible hangover. And I started to walk out. She said, Chauncey, did you need to see the captain? I said, no, it's okay. She said, well, what? I said, I'd, I'd rather talk about it, if at all, with you and the captain, just the three of us. And she said, the other lady said, well, that's okay, I'm leaving. And so she and I walked into the captain's office and she told him, well, Chauncey came over and he was going to say something, but then all of a sudden he was leaving and I said, Judy, Captain, I had heard through the grapevine that you had made your profession of faith and accepted the Lord as your Savior. And I was coming over to congratulate you. But when I came in, I heard, and I said, I'm sorry, Judy, but I heard you bragging about how you had such a hangover from partying so much. And she said, well, you know we're Catholics, right? Louisville, Kentucky, to be quite honest, was known for its Catholic beer bashes. The church picnics were the places where most of the teenagers went because they knew they wouldn't be carded. congratulate somebody for a commitment of faith when their behavior is indicating that the commitment has made no change. Obviously, in our story today, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made was vast and valuable. And it obviously had two purposes. First, it was to bring attention to the maker of the idol, the maker of the image. The very first words. He made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and made out of gold. Quite impressive to say the least. But it was an image. It was an idol that was to be worshipped. And it was something that Nebuchadnezzar had made and he had placed it in a location where everybody would see it. Vast, valuable, but void. You see, with the interpretation of the dream, a door of opportunity had been opened up for Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't enter it. While the revelation of the dream and the interpretation had initially brought humbling, I mean in chapter 2 verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. Now, it fueled his pride. 
And so the story continues. Then Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All those who had been summoned now gathered to show up obediently and become worshipers of the image. Verse 3 says that they gathered for a dedication of the image. And not only that, we're told that they stood before the image and when commanded by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar, they found, fell down and worshipped the image, the golden image that the king had set up. But the celebration quickly turns to the south, so to speak. Verse 8 to 12. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, the promotions of Daniel and his three friends had roused the jealousy of the Chaldeans. Their positions of honor and authority were not taken lightly. And I also believe it important that in these 12 verses that I've read, and once more in verse 14, did you hear how it's emphasized that Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue? Seven times that phrase is repeated in just 13 verses. And in chapter 2, Daniel had told the king that the God of heaven had given the power and might and glory to him. But he misused it. And it's now that you can see why I warned about interpreting his confession of 247. 
The superficiality of the confession, I think, is now clear. I just finished reading a book this week. Excellent book. Called Why the Gospel. Do you know that when the Bible answers the why the Gospel and what is the Gospel, it not once mentions the forgiveness of sins. That's not the good news according to the Scriptures. Now, forgiveness of sins is important. But every time it talks about the Gospel, it's the good news, the Gospel of Jesus the Christ. The good news is that God has in fact made Jesus the Son the King and has enthroned Him at the right hand upon His ascension. And when we fail to actually emphasize that the good news is about the King Jesus, we slip into a problem of getting people to be concerned only about their sins being forgiven and being saved from going to hell, that they forget that it's all about our total allegiance to Jesus as our King, our Lord, our Christ, our Messiah. And so the Chaldeans call for a reiteration of the decree with a punishment and quickly identify Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as those who were guilty of being denouncers of the image. And the accusation? These men, O king, pay no attention to you. That's probably a little bit of an exaggeration. But the next line is not. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so the battle regarding the image begins. Verses 13 to 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the old golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He'll deliver us out of your hand, O King. Listen. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
two features in the telling of the story that heighten the tension that surrounds its message. First, the repetition of the lists of the sights and the sounds. I think I had the names of the, me- of the instruments memorized already. The reader is brought into the story with all of its bells and smells. I mean, we're there. And the event was surrounded by a religious aura and doubtless made a very magnificent aesthetic impact. A big golden image, all of this music playing. Secondly, there's an obvious and blatant nature of the conflict between the city of this world and the city of God. You see, the choice was idolatry or death. At stake was not only obedience to the commands of God, but whether or not those made to be and being recreated in the image of God would bow down to an image of made by man. And in these circumstances, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it shines even brighter than the flames of the furnace as they powerfully illustrate faithfulness to God's Word. Nebuchadnezzar evidently believed that each person has his or her own price, and so he didn't think anybody would defy his command, so he offers us another chance. And certainly this was an even more severe test for the Hebrews than those they had already experienced in chapters 1 and 2 in terms of food and education and all. Their faithfulness and courage received a true, if maliciously exaggerated, and intended testimony from these astrologers and Chaldeans. But you see, they did, however, grasp the issue at stake when they said to the king, why, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold. Now I think the king who had previously had contact with these three young men already knew the answer to the question in verse 14. And so now he's actually challenging God as well as their courage. But the king didn't reckon that with their two leading characteristics, their knowledge of the power of God, verse 17, and their commitment to the revealed word of God, verse 18, their faith was suffused with expectation. Notice that what they said didn't put pre- display any presumption. You see how verse 17 ends and how 18 begins? He will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, we're still not going to serve your gods. And the rest of chapter 3 tells of their deliverance in spite of the fire. You see, the climax of the hostility of the king of Babylon to these citizens of Jerusalem is reached. Formerly, it said he was furious with rage. 
But now it says his attitude towards them changes. And in the face of their calm resolution, he commanded the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Get it up to full force, you know. And not only that, he had them bound, verse 20, by the strongest of the soldiers. They were firmly tied, it says in verse 23. And we're told that the furnace was so hot that the flames even killed the soldiers who were throwing them in. Now, the human impossibility of their survival is emphasized. But the description of their clothing serves as a signal of the unexpected triumph that's about to take place. While the king is raging, excuse me, And while the soldiers are being burned to death, it says the three friends appeared in festal attire. It's talking about the colorfulness of their clothing. And not only that, their deliverance is underlined by the activity that's taking place in the furnace. Verse 25 says they're walking around in the midst of the fire. Now Nebuchadnezzar had no choice but to reverse his earlier dogmatism because he sees the three confessors alive and now they're joined by a fourth godlike figure. He recognized that it was by no means anything other than a miraculous intervention of their God that they were in fact alive. And the event of Daniel 3 is a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 4. Fear not, Isaiah said, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, early Christian commentators have viewed that fourth man in the fire as in fact an appearance of the Son of God or possibly an angel of the Lord. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis of the story is on the completeness of God's protection shown by the fact that they emerged from that fire and didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. Now think about this. Chapter 3 begins with a decree from Nebuchadnezzar which threatened to destroy the kingdom of God. But it ends with a further decree in which all other kingdoms Peoples of any other language, verse 29, were threatened with destruction should they offend the kingdom of God. Now, how does that change take place? Because of the faithfulness and loyalty of three young men who said, I'll die before I will deny my God 
and worship your idols. So, what can we take from this story? Beyond the fact that three men survived being cast into a fiery furnace. Are you familiar with Philip Yancey? He's a Christian writer. Written some tremendous books. In a book that he wrote called, Where is God When It Hurts? He tells the story of Brian Sternberg. Brian's pictured here in a wheelchair. Brian was a nationally acclaimed track star. He held several records in pole vault competition. In fact, in 1963, during that season, when he was only 19 years old, he had such unbelievable success that he made sports headlines all around the world by setting world records. Three weeks after Brian had set what would be his last world record, everything changed. On July the 2nd of 1963, while working out on a trampoline in preparation for the U.S. track team's tour of Russia, Brian landed on his neck. There was a crack. All feeling and movement in his arms and legs were gone. He faced a crisis that confined him to a wheelchair. Brian had faith in God. And Brian had faith that God could and would heal his paralysis. But now, years later, he's still paralyzed. Did his faith fail? Did he not have enough faith? Did God make a mistake? Did God somehow forsake His child? I believe that the challenge we need to hear from this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is to learn the value of living a life of conviction. Less than a year after the accident, Brian was asked to write an article for Look Magazine. And he ended with these powerful words that described a biblical view of faith. Having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Being healed is one of them, he wrote. Peace of mind, if healing does not come, is the other. Either one will suffice. Not bad for somebody who's now a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, right? But somewhere along the line, he had been convinced by well-meaning Christians that since God loved him, God wanted him to walk again. And they convinced him that he would just, if he would just have enough faith, he could stand up and walk away from his wheelchair. And in Brian's mind, faith now meant that there remained not two options for God, but only one. And that was complete healing. Only complete healing would suffice. But here's the problem. 
He was putting his faith in faith. But not so with Daniel's three friends. Listen again. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here's my question for our challenge. Are you putting your faith in God and giving Him two options? Or are you trying to hold God hostage and say, I'm going to name it and claim it. You might have heard that on some television evangelism show. But it's not biblical. We have to give God two options. And we have to say, God, if this could happen, great. But if not, Thy will be done. You see, we have to have faith in God. Not faith in the level of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today often worshiping false gods. Thinking that we're worshiping you, but instead worshiping gods who set things in motion and, and don't care. Or, or gods who are micromanaging all things and, and we're just the, the puppets, the pawns that, that if it takes place, it must have been your will. And somehow we forget that you through your son even said that the ruler of this world is in fact the devil, the deceiver. Help us to have the faith that still believes in you when those trials come and when we are cast into fiery furnaces knowing that there will be a fourth man in the fire. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.